Are we up? There we go. Thanks to our worship team for leading us in that. You notice that's written by North Wakers, and yes, that was our own Daniel Creswell on the psaltery. <laughs> Nicely done, Daniel. Would you bow with me in prayer as we open up the word together? Father, come now and by your very words, lead your people to the life you have called us to. Show us what it means to follow after your son, to be followers of Christ in all that we do. We pray now that our excuses and our rationales and our fears and our resistances, our snares would all be set aside by your spirit and your word that we might follow your son. We pray in his name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 if you'd like. We are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings. We are at the back end of chapter 4. Start thinking about this passage. It's a little bit of an unusual passage, but if you were going to start a business venture and it was going to go global, where would you start it? Maybe Atlanta or D.C.? Maybe even Charlotte. How about Franklin County? That's exactly, that'd be an odd choice. And, and I, I raise that question because what's happening in the back end of Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus is beginning a ministry that's going to go global, and he starts it in the oddest of places. Um, he's you're following his baptism, his temptation. He's now preparing to launch his public ministry. We are four chapters into Matthew. Jesus has not preached a word yet. It's very interesting. Instead of what we would expect, you would expect him to go to the D.C. of his day, to go to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus goes in the opposite direction. He goes to a place called Galilee. Um, and if you look down in verse 12 of chapter 4, um, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. There is kind of a regime change that's happening here. John the Baptist is forcibly removed from the scene by imprisonment by Herod. And Jesus is preparing to begin his public ministry. As we'll see, he's going to pick up John's message. Jesus' geography itself seems to be affected by John's imprisonment. It says, John is imprisoned. He withdrew into, of all places, Galilee. Listen to what the commentators say about Galilee. They say, Galilee is a strange place for a Messiah to work. Galilee was not just geographically far from Jerusalem. It was considered spiritually and politically far as well. Galilee was the most removed of the Jewish provinces, located as it was at the northernmost tier of Palestine. Judeans thought Galileans sat rather loose to the law and were less biblically pure than those in or near Jerusalem. So when we talk about Galilee, this is your geography lesson for the day. Here's um, Jerusalem down here by the Dead Sea. There's the Mediterranean. We're talking about this region up here. Far away, the far northern, northwestern part of Israel. Nowhere near Jerusalem. It's the Franklin County of Israel. Okay? It's not the place where you would expect 
Jesus to go. Um, it seems an odd choice of corporate headquarters for Jesus. Okay. Bob Deffenbaugh, in his commentary, points out, he says, Matthew has gone to considerable effort to underscore the relationship Jesus had to Galilee. Jesus' parents were from Galilee. Jesus was raised in Galilee. God directed Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt and then to Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus was a Galilean. That was his home. Jesus began his earthly ministry in Galilee. He went from Galilee then to Jerusalem, and many Galileans followed Jesus to Jerusalem, notably his disciples and the women who accompanied him. Most of Jesus' earthly ministry was in Galilee. Jesus met his disciples in Galilee after his resurrection. What's the point of all the emphasis on Galilee? Now, it might be because it's a response. You notice he hears about John being imprisoned, and he retreats to Galilee or withdraws to Galilee. It could be that for the time being, he's trying to avoid John's fate down in Jerusalem where Herod had imprisoned him. But that's not surely the only reason behind Jesus' curious choice of Galilee as the base of his operations. Look at verses 12 and 13 again and what follows. Okay. He heard John had been arrested. He goes to Galilee. He leaves Nazareth. He lives in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So when you read that, Maybe the simplest and most compelling of the answers as to why Jesus chose Galilee is that it fulfilled the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It was one of the many pointers, particularly in Isaiah, that pointed to who the Messiah would be and where he would be. Um, Some 700 years before Jesus lived, Isaiah pointed to Galilee. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, these verses about where he will come and what he will do. But what follows it immediately is more familiar to you probably. Remember this? For to us a child is born, Isaiah said in chapter 9, just following the prediction about Galilee. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, Jesus' move to Galilee is a pointer that he is the one who is to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As Isaiah's words indicate, Galilee was, at this time, a really dark spiritual place. 
D.A. Carson says that in despised Galilee, the place where people live in darkness, that is, without the religious and cultic advantages of Jerusalem, the land of the shadow of death, that is, where the darkness is most dense, here in Galilee, the light, the Messiah, has dawned. Jesus chose Galilee in fulfillment of prophecy but also in compassion for those who are in great spiritual darkness. Here it's in a place that was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are simply non-Jews. You could say the nations when you see the Gentiles. Um, Jesus would base his ministry. It would anticipate his mission to all peoples. To the darkest of nations. So just as there were Gentile women embedded in Jesus' genealogy, just as Gentile scholars, those magi, were the first to come and worship the Christ child, in keeping with these pointers, Jesus now begins his ministry in a place known as Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations with the intent that one day every tribe, tongue, and nation would gather in worship around his throne. Um, Jesus chose Galilee in part because the need was great there and it represented the ministry that he was going to have to the nations, to the darkest places on earth. And it is because of scriptures like this that we have North Wake families living in Thailand and Kenya and Italy and Papua New Guinea and Turkey and Bosnia and Romania, six families in India and seven more in China. See, Jesus came to Galilee of the Gentiles to the darkest place to bring the light of the gospel of the kingdom to them. And we do the same. We we do the same. Now, Galilee also fits with what we know about Jesus so far, which is that his entrance is the humblest of entrances. His genealogy is a wreck. Um, His place of birth is with the animals in a little town in the middle of nowhere. And now he begins his ministry in an out-of-the-way, the most remote of the provinces of Israel. It it reminds us of what the writer of Hebrews will say about Jesus. In Hebrews 2, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus himself, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became like us in every respect. He didn't come and live the high life. In the great palaces of his day, Jesus himself would say that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Galilee was not a popular resort destination. It wasn't like RTP where you had lots of really creative commerce going on. It was mostly agriculture and fishing. And it was not esteemed by, by, the, by the Jews. It's been said that Galileans were not highly regarded, but rather were looked upon with contempt. You remember um, when Philip went to his brother Nathaniel after Philip encountered Jesus. This is in John chapter 1. He says, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and the prophets also wrote about Jesus of Nazareth, which is in Galilee, the son of Joseph. And what does Nathanael say back? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay. It just was a place they thought badly of. It was especially looked down upon amongst the Jews. Remember, um, if, you've ever, if you've ever read through the gospel of, of Matthew fully, later on there's this wild party that Herod throws. And he has um, one of his daughters come in and do some kind of erotic dancing. And it pleases him so much he gives her anything she wants. She asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. But it's interesting when they describe who was there for that wild party, the leaders of Galilee were there. They were cronies with Herod, who was the, the dictator over God's people Israel at this time. It was not a popular place. When you were, if your, if your leaders were budding up to Herod, then you were not going to be popular with the Jews. It was a place where people were despised and outcast, remote, in spiritual darkness. It was the perfect place for Jesus to launch his ministry. It fits Jesus' humility. You get the sense that this is not just any global, um, global business being launched. Okay? This is not Jesus CEO. This is Jesus suffering servant. Come in humility to those in greatest need. So in the unlikeliest of places, this humble province of Galilee, Jesus steps into the, right into the center of the plan of God for his life and he begins his preaching ministry. And here's a summary of his first sermon. From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. Now, a couple of things you, you should notice right away about that. One, he's using John the Baptist's sermon notes. Okay. Gee, Jesus stole his sermon from John the Baptist. It's the exact same thing John the Baptist preached. Okay. Jesus is in continuity with what all has gone before amongst the prophets and up to John. And that message is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay. Jesus Nice, warm, fuzzy Jesus begins his ministry with repent. Okay? Turn from your sins. Um, one writer says that the first time Jesus appears in the first gospel, the first instruction he gives is repent. Okay? From then on, it's his most consistent message. In all times, every situation, his advice is repent. Not just the scribes and the Pharisees, not just the powerful. He even tells the poor and the oppressed that repentance is the key to eternal life. And we saw last week that repentance is heartfelt sorrow for sin, 
a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. So this is Jesus' message then. This is Jesus' message now. We talked about this at length last week. But he is calling us to repent. To repent because the kingdom of heaven is breaking in. It's been called um, breaking news. You know, it's stuff that's happening even as we report it. It started with Christ's coming, and it continues through our day. The kingdom is breaking news. The long-awaited Messiah has appeared, and he is to return. And this is the essence of Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of and throughout his ministry. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he continues, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he's still in Galilee, And he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is a really remarkable encounter. Jesus is still up in Galilee. He is calling these despised Galileans to be his disciples. That's who the disciples were. They were Galileans. Now, he calls two sets of brothers to follow him. And it's not uncommon in Jesus' day that itinerant teachers like Jesus had followers who actually followed him around. It wasn't just, um, you know, a, a sense of I follow him ideologically, but they literally packed up their bags and would follow him around. That wasn't uncommon in the day. But what was uncommon was that the teacher should choose his disciples. What was common in their day was that the disciples would approach the teacher and say, can I travel with you? Can I study under you? Can I be your disciple? But Jesus here exercises his authority and reveals it, unlike the teachers of his day, as he chooses his disciples. Now, it's helpful to realize as you watch their radical response, this was probably, most likely not, their first encounter with Jesus. If you read the first chapter of the Gospel of John, you'll find this same group of disciples are called in a different way by Jesus there. They've already had a meeting with Jesus, already had interaction with him. Um, And I'd encourage you to read John 1 later today. I get a sense for how they were prepared for this interaction. But with this interaction, Jesus is calling them to follow him, to pack up their belongings, and as, as they did, as was common in the day, to be followers with him, to follow him around and live with him. And the way they respond to Jesus' call is really helpful for us. It's worth thinking about. It's exemplary for us in at least three ways. First of all, they respond immediately. There's no dilly-dallying. There's no excuses. There are no delays. 
their obedience is immediate to the call Jesus places on them. Think about this. Uh, three friends decide to go deer hunting together. Okay? It's a lawyer, a doctor, and a preacher. Okay? As they're walking along, um, along comes a big buck. The three of them shot simultaneously at the buck. Immediately, the buck drops, drops to the ground. All three of them rush up to see how big it actually was. Upon reaching it, they couldn't determine whose shot had actually killed the deer. As a heated debate ensued, a few minutes later, a game officer came up, asked him what the problem was. The doctor told him that they were debating about who shot the buck. The officer took a look at the buck, and within a few seconds, he said with much confidence, the preacher shot the buck. They all wondered how he knew that so quickly, and the officer said, it's easy. The bullet went in one ear and out the other. When was the last time you applied the word promptly that was preached to you in this room? When was the last time you came forward for prayer at the close of a service because you couldn't wait to obey Christ? Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so committed to obeying Christ that you didn't want to leave the room without some kind of sealing the deal that you were going to obey him? Have you ever jotted down an action point in your notes that you're taking on the sermon as it's being preached because if God speaks to you during the sermon, you sure don't want to forget it so you are taking notes on the sermon, I'm sure, but when was the last time that you wrote down that you had an action point that you had to act on and you went home and before the afternoon was out, you were working it out? Now, I know that some of that is on me. Okay? It's hard to do what is unintelligible. Okay? I know that. But let's be honest. Most of it's on you, isn't it? Whether you obey the word or not. It's not always so incoherent that you can't. Because okay? other people preach here from time to time. See, the disciples' yes was already on the table. And whatever Jesus asked, they were going to say yes to. Is your yes on the table for Jesus? Without qualification. See, their response was immediate. First thing I see. Second thing is, um, it was sacrificial. It cost them something. They left their nets. Both sets of brothers were fishermen. Throwing out those big circular nets weighted down, catching the fish that would swim past. Jesus interrupts their work day, and they, in response, walk away from their income. 
You know, it appears as you read the Gospels um, together that they may have returned to fishing time to time, from time to time after this, perhaps. But, but if you know anything about business, you know that to walk away from a small family business, even for a season, it costs you something. They made a sacrifice to follow Jesus. When was the last time that following Jesus cost you something? Maybe it cost you a client or a promotion or a purchase. When did you last give away money you'd been saving up for you such that it cost you something to follow Jesus? See, their, their yes was on the table, and it cost them something in their pocketbook. Have you made a sacrifice to follow Jesus? Following Jesus is a sacrificial act. Their, their response was immediate, it was sacrificial, and I would say it's supreme above all other commitments. I'm sure you noticed that phrase at the end there. It says, they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, these sons of Zebedee, mending their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I'm sure this, this was for them the bigger cost. They left their dad there in the boat alone, or at least without his sons. He would have to get along without them. His dreams of passing the family business on to his sons were dashed in that moment. That's not that Jesus was anti-family. The broader New Testament is more than clear on the priority of caring for your family. In 1 Timothy, it says, if you don't take care of those in your own house, you are, you've denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. So that's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is clear about to whom supreme allegiance must be given. Luke tells us that Jesus teaches that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's establishing supremacy of allegiance to Jesus over all other allegiances such that they look like hate in comparison. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? When Jesus says, follow me, what is he asking of you? These brothers, they model it for us. It means prompt, sacrificial, supreme obedience to Jesus. That's what it means to follow in the way that he, he intends. The disciples are like a word picture for us in that. If I was going to assign a label to what it means to follow based on these brothers' lives, I would say that it means this phrase. It means glad submission. I mean, no one is twisting their arm. No one is threatening them. No one is browbeating them. They react like it's the greatest privilege in the world. Okay? Give up anything to follow Jesus. 
net, family, income. They were in glad submission to the call of Jesus to follow. At another level, I suppose we could say that what it means to follow Jesus is to become a fisher of men. That's what, that's what these guys are being enlisted to do. We follow Jesus for others, to help others follow him too. That's, that's what it means to follow Jesus. We become fishers of men. Lee Strobel tells a really encouraging story. He says, um, I remember flying into Midway Airport in Chicago during a blizzard, and an engineer from India was sitting next to me on the plane, and as we talked, I found out he was planning to take a bus all the way to O'Hare Airport and then have his pregnant wife drive from a distant suburb with his two young children to pick him up. Strobel says, look, I have a car at Midway. How about if I just give you a lift home? He was grateful, and during our drive, he asked why I had been willing to go out of my way for him. Listen, listen to what Lee Strobel says. He says, has anybody ever done something so kind for you that it makes you want to pass a kindness on to someone else? The engineer nodded slightly. He says, well, Jesus Christ has done something incredibly kind for me. He says, as we talked, he began to understand that God's outpouring of grace had motivated me to help him. And when we arrived at his house, he thanked me and said, I'm going to have to do some thinking about all of this. He says, there's no doubt in my mind my words about Jesus registered with him because he experienced the love of Jesus through my practical deed of giving him a ride through the storm. See, we can do this. We can love our neighbors and speak of Christ to them. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing. Love God, love neighbor. And part of loving neighbor is speaking to them about Jesus. Um, here's the problem. There's a recent study done by Ellison Research it's fascinating. It says the percentage of Americans who have never known, never known a person like this, okay? Percentage of Americans who have never known a Buddhist. 59% of Americans have never had a friend who's a Buddhist. A Muslim. 46% of Americans have never had a friend who's a Muslim. 40% of Americans have never known an evangelical Christian. 40%. They've never been offered to come into your home. They've never been offered to go to coffee with you. They've never um, had lunch with you. They've never hung out after, after work with you. They've never met anyone who knows Jesus. 40% of the people you pass every day in Food Lion and at Target and down at Walmart. It raises the question, 
Are you a secret Christian where you work? Or at school? Or in your neighborhood? Do people know that you follow Jesus? And are you loving them in such a way that your life and your words are an invitation for them to follow too? Why Galilee? Lots of reasons, I suppose. The, the ancient prophecies, the spiritual darkness, Jesus' humility. But don't miss the fact that Jesus loved the people in Galilee. That's why he went there. And a group of them would become his disciples. And then where's the best place on earth for those disciples to become fishers of men? Where they're from. Where they live. In Galilee. Most, of, most all of his disciples were Galilean. It was the best place on earth for them to become fishers of men, which is what it means to follow Jesus in some way. Well, what Jesus is about to do next, or what Matthew's about to do, is to set up kind of a little summary of the next five chapters of the book. Okay. Um, starting in verse 23, it says, he went throughout all Galilee, Jesus did, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That word gospel just means good news. He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, which is even probably farther north than Galilee, even more Gentile. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them. You could say Jesus' ministry is marked broadly, and it's going to be marked in the next chapters, by two great categories of ministry. Teaching and healing. Okay. Words and deeds. In in chapters 5 through 7, we're going to get to sit under Jesus' teaching. It's the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever, ever delivered. Um, that's his teaching ministry in chapters 5 through 7. In chapters 8 and 9, there are 10 miracles that Jesus does. It's his deeds, his works that identify him as the Messiah. But in this, in this short summary... Of all that is to follow in the next five chapters, one thing's really clear, and I don't want us to miss it, and that is that Jesus healed people all the time. All kinds of people with all kinds of diseases and afflictions. And so I suppose another part of what it means for us to follow Jesus is that we care for those who are sick and suffering, especially by praying for them. Dale Bruner in his commentary says, There is such a strong emphasis on Jesus' healings in the gospel that the church is surely following Jesus most closely when she has regular prayer for her sick. And, you know, we, I want you to know we do that at Northway. Pretty regularly, people will come to our elders and say they want to be prayed for by the elders for their sickness. 
And so we'll gather with them often after Sunday services over in the conference room. And we, following the pattern of James chapter 5, we pray for them and we anoint them with oil that they may be healed. We do this together as a church body by email. There's a thing called a a prayer chain. You may not even know it exists. Um, Someone uh, lets Karen know in the office that there's a need for prayer and it goes out to a whole bunch of folks, I don't know how many are on it, spread throughout our church by email. It's a prayer chain. It goes out immediately, and people can pray immediately for that need. If you want to be part of that, just email office at northwake.com and say, I want to be part of the prayer chain. And Karen will put you on that list. We do it in that way. We do it corporately from time to time on Sunday evenings. We'll gather I'm sure we'll do it again um, in the next several months. We'll gather on our Sunday evening prayer time, and we pray for those who are sick and suffering. And I don't want you to underestimate, this is not some powerless act of obedience that we do. Jesus still heals people through the prayers of the church. God loves to pour out his power when his people pray. I ran across this fabulous story, and I, I just could not... I couldn't resist sharing it with you. It's by John Ortberg. He says, when my friend Kim was a young girl, her dad pulled the car off the road one day to help a woman change a flat tire. While he was lying under the car, another vehicle accidentally swerved to the shoulder, and in the collision, the car was shoved onto his chest. His right thumb was torn off at the joint. Five of his ribs were broken, and his left lung was pierced and began filling with blood. His wife who is barely five feet tall, placed her hands on the bumper of the car and prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and lifted the car off his chest so he could be dragged out. Some weeks later, she found out that she had broke a vertebra in the effort. Kim's father was in a state of shock as he was taken to the hospital. Doctors prepared him for emergency surgery, and one of them was heard to say his thumb won't do him any good if he's dead. His survival was iffy, but then suddenly, spontaneously, it seemed, the man's skin changed from ashen to pink. He experienced a miraculous healing. He invited a surprise surgical team to join him in singing, Fairest Lord Jesus. They did not even bother to hook him up to oxygen. He did not find out until later that this was the precise moment his father-in-law, who was a pastor, had his congregation Start to pray for him. Now, I love the way Ortberg says this. He says, sometimes these stories come from not very credible sources, such as publications sold in grocery checkout lines that also carry news about extraterrestrial creatures secretly playing third base for the Boston Red Sox. (laughs) In this case, however, he says, the subject was James Loder, a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. His life was not only saved, but changed. Until then, although he taught at a seminary, God had been mostly an abstract idea to him. Now Jesus became a living presence. Kim writes that her father's heart grew so tender that he became known at Princeton as the weeping professor. He began to live from one moment to the next in a God-bathed, God-soaked, God-intoxicated world. 
See, God loves to pour out his power when his people pray. Um, in a much lesser, much, much lesser vein, uh, yesterday I woke up with a horrible sore throat. It got worse as the day went on. I began to ache and feel downright miserable. And uh, late in the afternoon uh, on Saturdays, I always send out prayer requests uh, for my ministry and for the church to a group of people in the church who've committed to pray for me. And I sent those out. And by the power of prayer and drugs, in that order, um, I am here today, feel fine. Um, obviously, I have a voice, no sore throat. Um, and so I give credit to God and drugs in that order. Okay? Um, See, in following Jesus, we become fishers of men as we speak about the king and his kingdom and as we pray for people who are sick and suffering. And you can and should do this, not just corporately with the church, but out in, in your ministry in the world where you work, where you get your hair cut, where you eat. You should offer to pray for people. Um, lady who uh, cuts my hair this week um, told me just a, a really difficult situation she's involved in. Her husband has contracted um, a Mercer's staph infection, which is tough. And he's been, uh, as a result of a surgery in the hospital, back surgery, he's been out of work for five months. And their uh, foreclosure procedures are starting on their house in two weeks. And so I said she, I would pray for her. And she, and I went to leave, and she would not let me out of her salon without grabbing me by the hands and having me pray for her before I left her office, or before I left her salon. You can do that. You can offer to pray for the waitress who waits on your table, the mechanic who fixes your car, the barber who cuts your hair, the teacher that cares for your children at school, your coworkers. You can do this. And it opens up all kinds of amazing conversations about the king and the kingdom. So you can be, you must be fishers of men if we're going to really follow Jesus. Because he lived for others. And he died for others. And he rose from the dead on the third day for others. And that's our story. Now our... our passage today, it's interesting, it closes just like it started with a geography lesson. Verse 25, great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. It's been pointed out that Matthew manages to cover the entire compass with this statement, this little phrase. Galilee to the northwest, the Decapolis to the northeast, Judea to the southwest, beyond the Jordan to the southeast, and the center of the Jewish world is Jerusalem. See, he loves not only Galilee of the Gentiles, but he loves the whole world. And he loves our little Galilee right here in Wake Forest. And he is inviting you of all people, he's inviting you this morning to follow him here. All that that means, Jesus is inviting you to follow him. Is your yes on the table 
to follow Jesus this morning. Promptly, sacrificially, supremely to follow Jesus. Let's, let's bow and pray about that if you want. <clears throat> so when we think about it, Father, they should have thrown down their nets and they should have run after Jesus as fast as they could have because how much better is following Jesus than fishing? But somehow from them to us, it gets confusing and there's so many things that seem better to us, sometimes seem more valuable to us, seem more significant to us, more pleasurable to us. And so we get off track and we find all kinds of excuses and reasons not to put our yes on the table and do whatever Jesus would ask us. And so this morning, God, in this room, as we think rightly, as we're here clothed and in our right minds, um, we, your people, want to say yes to following Jesus again. Some of us, this might be the very first time that we say yes. We've resisted saying, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need a Savior, and I will follow him all of my days. We've never said that before, and this, this moment is your gift to us to say yes for the first time. And then for the rest of us, for the umpteenth time, we need a course correction, and we need to say yes. We need to repent of saying no to following Jesus in our foolishness and say yes Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you sacrificially, immediately, supremely. I will live my life in glad submission to whatever you ask of me. So, Lord, give us grace now by your Spirit to put our yes on the table and do that which you have called us to do as your followers. We pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen.